Hey, hey, water coolians! Welcome back. We did it. We finally freaking captured the hearts and the souls of the great people of Vermont, and now are officially listened to in every single U.S. state. It took blood, it took sweat, and it took a lot of tears trying to figure out what the heck was going on in Vermont. I don't know if you guys remember, but at one point, we didn't even think it existed. But welcome, Vermontians. We are comfortably nifty in our 50 and ready to tackle the next goal, the Falkland Islands. You're technically British, but that doesn't matter. You still have a home here. <laughs> but to today's episode, we are joined by the absolutely wonderful Maya Ford, a cultural communications expert, to have an even more wonderful conversation about the intricacies of tennis versus pickleball and share some free insight for the city of San Diego on how not to lose money by hurting your own residents. Yeah, you know, doesn't make sense, right? Yeah, exactly. I think you will find uh, in this episode that it's one of those, each time you listen to, it's going to hit a bit different. It's layered in such a unique way. I mean, even listening back a few times during the editing process, I was picking up new bits and meaning and hearing Maya and I's conversation in new light because of influences like when I listened and where I listened. And not just location, but also where my mind was. And just about everything in between. But Maya does such an amazing job bringing forth layered language that allows you to encompass deeper meanings and explore under the surface that is uniquely unique to her. Uniquely unique. Makes sense. I like it. But much of this episode will focus on how we are influenced by the world around us and as shared by Maya, how we can embrace our tools to help set ourselves up for the best possible outcome. And I want you to sit with those stories and think about that. As someone who has closely followed the writers and actors strike and now the autoworkers strike, we have immense power in togetherness. When you start blaming the roots for the drought while the, <laughs> the clouds are refusing to rain, you might be missing the point. Whether it be togetherness in ensuring you have accessible resources in your community to allow dreams to be realized on the local tennis courts, as they were with Chris Eubanks, as we'll talk about in the episode, or understanding that around 60% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck, and sometimes, just sometimes, the necessary resources to be able to pay a parking ticket just aren't available. Life can be as easy or as hard as we make it, but in togetherness, it becomes easier. And maybe, just maybe... Avatar can bring us all together. You have to get pretty deep into the episode to enjoy that reference. Uh, so anyways, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, this is episode 86 of Water Cooler Talk, titled So Can I, with Maya Ford. Enjoy! This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not, because they're real. The kookaburras were really cool. In a way, I shouldn't have enjoyed seeing them eat their <laughs> their prey so much. But, you know, they stick them in their mouth and they like whack mm -hmm. them like left, right and left and right. And um, we had elephant births, which had considerable controversy because elephants in captivity tend to have a virus that kills them very young. Mm -hmm. So um, I gotten close to two of the elephant calves and they'd passed. That was very sad. But I got to see four giraffe births in person. And um, more importantly, I think as a woman of color, 
and someone who grew up in the great outdoors. It was a remarkable space to show that people like me existed in conservation and in, in the, as part of the animal species. And so one thing that I think humans forget is that we're mammalian too. We think that because we communicate with each other and we can build great tools that like we're so unique. And that's just not true. We're a part of the planet the same way other animal life forms are. And working at the zoo allowed me to have very distinctive language for that, which I've carried through. I'll continue to carry through my whole life. I like that. You're going to have, you're going to be awesome at the show close. But yeah, that's one of the things I really found with working with animals is everyone can enjoy animals. Just the power of connection through animals and seeing these magnificent, you know, creatures really can bring people together like any other thing can do. We're pack animals. And this comes back to a lot of like what I'm hoping we will get into today, that we fundamentally have this really unique idea of integration and like how we collaborate. Mm -hmm. And we have this idea of mixing it up and everybody just kind of getting along. In the animal kingdom and in the fauna component, you see that, but everyone still has every life entity still has a territory and they're making agreements into that. And I think that humans will probably have a a better chance at getting stronger outcomes if we start to go back to observing how that happens and consider ourselves a part of the natural world instead of always trying to defy nature. Not saying that we can't think bigger and that those things can't happen because that happens in nature too. But the laws of nature are still fundamentally unfounded for many of us, and we're still learning. So how do we like tap into the learning and learn with it instead of saying that we're learning it to control it? Yeah, it was so amazing to see, you know, predator and prey living together, living in, you know, harmony together for the most part, you know, 99% of the time, except, we, you know, when one of them gets hungry. Uh, but working in human-wildlife conflict... It was so amazing to see that and then to see these constant, you know, conflicts between humans and wildlife and things that are like, okay, maybe instead of expanding wide, we expand up. And so we're not going into those spaces. I mean, now looking back at, you know, the COVID pandemic and zoonic diseases and all these things that are going to continue to happen as we say, oh, I guess we're at the top of the food chain so we can do whatever we want, even though we've seen in nature you know, animals at the top of the food chain working together within the whole ecosystem to make it work. And I think us as humans can do that. It's just we kind of have to uh, work above our egos to get there. Good point. I'm really going to take that with me. I'm going to have to think about that up instead of wide. In communications, we talk about going deep instead of wide. So yeah, that's a that's a good point. All right, Adam, you got me going. All right. Are you ready to, now that we're getting you going, are you ready to jump into the first story of our episode here? Let's do it. This is from the Atlanta News First by Patrick Quinn, July 19th, 2023. Families say they're priced out of youth tennis. Wimbledon darling Chris Eubanks, whose historic run to the quarterfinals include beating the number seven and number 16th ranked players in the world and a competitive loss against number three in the world, began his career on the tennis courts at the South Fulton Tennis Center roughly 15 miles south of Atlanta, Georgia. Now families from that same area where Eubanks got a start say due to high court rental costs, a summer tennis program at the tennis center had to be canceled for roughly 70 families. Pivotal Sales, whose daughter plays youth tennis in South Fulton, 
helped organize an online petition urging local officials to help relax court fees to accommodate families. Right now, there's an online petition with more than 700 signatures appealing to the city, but attempts to find middle ground have not been met. She stated, For South Fulton, everyone is not trying to become pro. For many, summer camps are a place to send your children to be able to eat, a place where they can go, we know where they're safe, they're having fun, all that was dried up this summer. Court fees at South Fulton are now set at $17 per match. In surrounding cities, court fees are set at $5 an hour in Peachtree City and Gwinnett County and $3 an hour before 6 p.m. in Sugar Creek. Makai Sales, 15, said she watched Eubanks run at Wimbledon and now she's missing out on practicing in light of the summer camp not running full programming this summer. She stated, And to see him on Wimbledon TV playing Tissy Pots and like Medvedev and all the big guys, I was like, Oh my goodness, like... I know this dude. It kind of like just inspired me to want to do that. And that's why I need to practice. In order to get to where he is, I need to practice in order to do that. A spokesperson for the city of South Fulton stated, We understand the importance of ensuring affordability and accessibility for all families. Our aim is to strike a balance between maintaining the high-quality standards of the camps and making them more financially attainable for everyone. So, Maya, as someone who has had years of experience working within communities... What importance have you found in the impact of social programs like, you know, a summer tennis camp that connect or even as you found in your work with the Kinder Institute, local town halls in Spanish with English translators, you know, when most of the community isn't speaking English as a first language? Yeah, right. So I liked this story because it told different sides of general economics and how it can impact. Um, where I, I was a little concerned is like, they didn't tell us what the price point ended up as. So do those six weeks, I'm sorry, six months that they're leaving the court open for certain hours equate X amount of dollars for the community instead. And I think that that would have been a benefit to the community to understand you're not getting that here during this period, but you're getting this financial value here instead. So the first thing is language. Are we using language that really people can understand? What the community saw is that one of them, Chris Eubanks, who is a dope player. I don't know if you follow him, (laughs) but it's just so much fun to watch him. You know, one of them got access. And then once he made it, then you shut the access down for, for the rest of us. And that's historically what's happened to minorities. White supremacy in the United States has not been fair. It's been a pick and choose model, which is why we supposedly had scenarios or policies like, uh, oh gosh, what did we just go through with the Supreme Court? I just- College admissions. College admissions, right? And so you had those policies to try to balance the scales, to to keep the doors open for those who wanted. And so that a lot of that is what the community is feeling in this- scenario as well. They're saying, hey, Chris got in and our kids have capacity and opportunity and it's in our community. It's an asset that we deem fit in our hood. So why then would you triple the cost that, you know, from $5 an hour to $17 per match? Also is 17, like how long is a match? I had so many questions. I know. That's why I was kind of like looking, trying to look more into this and get that information. I wasn't able to find any more information about the tennis court's pricing, but I did find that the center was approved for renovations in 2020, which the City Parks, Recreation, and Cultural Affairs director stated would turn one of the premier tennis centers in the metro area to world-class status. 
But as you were saying, you know, at the very beginning there, like the language and the clear communication between, you know, local governments and the communities that they govern over are so important because this is confusing. Like we're outsiders. Obviously, we're not living in those communities. But even as somebody who's living in that community, being confused about what's going on is a big precursor to how local governments can create situations that aren't beneficial for the residents actually living there. Yeah. And to be frank, what if it still is? We keep assuming that the standards that we've had were good. And when we when you do the economic cost of what it would actually take to be able to provide stability, safety, sustenance, then it, it's usually three or four times that. So what we know for sure is that a government, a municipality is not allowed to charge to make money. So you can, so when we, when they frame it in this capitalist mindset of like, it went from five to 17, well, it said $5 an hour, not $17 an hour. So that's number one. But number two is the municipality is not allowed to profit from it. So what if they are profiting, if there is excess, what are they using it towards? And I think that's what they went back into address with the council. So, you know, there's so many questions to this article. The, the scenario is not linear, but the community feels as though it shut them out. That's the bigger point. And what you have to do in resolution there is to say, how are you creating policies and space and safety for people to be able to actually use what's in their neighborhoods? That's simple. You can have all your economic speak to the left or to the right, you know, save that for the attorneys. At the end of the day, we want to produce Chris Eubanks, Maya Fords, who will never make it to the tennis pros. <laughs> never make it at the Wimbledon, huh? <laughs> Adam, not even close. <laughs> Adam Williams. You know, we want to we want to create we want to give our kids more opportunities to be diverse and explore mm-hmm. without making everything about the currency of the dollar. There are more currencies at play. I, I, I was trying to find if Chris Eubanks had talked about this. I wasn't able to find anything in the moment, but I'll continue to look. But I think if you talk to him, and obviously I don't want to put any words in his mouth, but I think you would talk about like everyone has a journey to get to where they need to be. And some people along the way, they might have gates within that journey. They might have walls within that journey that they have to knock down. You know, some people have the opportunity where there's no gates on that journey. They can drive two semis just straight down that journey, easy peasy. Other people, they have to bring sledgehammers and knock down those walls and figure it out. But I've always believed government should be uh, uh, helpful in that and making sure that, hey, if you need to knock down a wall, we'll provide you the sledgehammer. That's a good smart, a good start for local communities or local governments to be helpful to their residents because the fact that, I don't know if you had gotten a chance to actually watch like the news video that they had in this article, but one of the fathers was saying like he had to drive, you know. 50 miles each way every day. Keishan Davis from South Fulton said because of poor tennis resources here, he drove his daughter, now a freshman tennis player at Louisville, to Duluth every day for practice. She did not have the opportunity to really uh, take advantage of any resources in the community as a result of there not being any. Those are obstacles that some people that, you know, can afford the $17 a match don't have to worry about and don't consider. And that's something that as far as communicating within communities needs to happen more and say, I shouldn't have to be driving my daughter one, two hours out of the way one way and then one, two hours out of the way back for her to live out her dream 
when your family doesn't need to worry about that, we need to find a way that we can both live in this community. We can both take a part of, you know, summer tennis camps, for example, from this story and not have to worry about those economic factors playing a role in how we get our journey to the next level. Yeah. It's also why we have taxpayers, right? So like if those those taxpayers in that municipality are paying for those services, yeah, you shouldn't have to drive two hours out of your way, you know? And it does come back down to this idea that homeownership residents and business owners have a lot of power in municipalities. Their voices are prioritized because they pay direct taxes into the pool, whereas renters and the general labor force who don't own the businesses are paying through sales tax. Um, it depends on if you have a state income tax, right? So there are levels of the prioritization of how voices are heard. No politician will tell you that, but it's true. And so understanding you know, what that prioritization is in your municipality is really important. But also recognizing that if you're a resident in that community, if you if you share that zip code, hold your city council persons accountable, hold your mayor, your elected officials, right? These are people that work for you. If you don't work for them, they work for you. And so this is why voting matters. So you're right. That's the sledgehammer component where we often think that the system doesn't work for us because we haven't worked it. Instead of thinking that maybe the system has been wrong all along, it like doesn't, or maybe it's just wrong for us right now. It no longer suits our needs. And that's a space where residents, no matter if you own a business, a home, or, or not, residents hold a lot of power. So this is one of the reasons we tell people to vote. Voting um, apathy is... A bad idea, not because voting solves everything. It doesn't. And not because one vote matters. Technically, it doesn't. What voting does is allows you to use language and pool your values. And those values together become your asset. So voting allows you to protect your assets. And this is a space where that community really has a large voice. How do we work on something like that where you get into communities where everyone's going to have a different idea, different agenda to how to get to, I mean, you had the quote, everyone deserves to have safe, accessible, predictable spaces that allow them to commit to more than production and consumption. How do we create those spaces when everyone is bringing in different ideas and as far as getting to those spaces, has a different journey to get there. First of all, could I just be a cocky butthead for a second? I love that. When you just read that, I was like, oh my God, I totally agree with that. Oh, I said it. <laughs> I love that. When people quote me now, I'm going to say exactly, I'm stealing that as well. <laughs> totally, that sounds totally really good. Did. Oh, that's me. You really are like, that is my exact sentiment. Like, whoever said that, I totally agree. We're so much more than production and consumption, right? Mm -hmm. In this case about the tennis courts, totally proves that. It has nothing to do with their kids being superstars. Yep. It has nothing to do with them producing for money or them consuming something. It's about their wellness, their, their self-esteem, something that they're really enjoying, their curiosity, their drive, right? Like that's what our lives are made of and they deserve safe spaces too. One thing I think is a fallacy is that people come to the table with so many different ideas. I think that we actually don't. The issue is that there might be a lot of us and we don't know how to approach or corral 
this many people that may or may not look like us. And we assume or we project that they may not have the same values. When you do the work, which is what we encourage, you find out what the people's values are and you're able to what we call disaggregate. So you go in and you gather those people and you say, all right, fine. What are the top five elements that are important to you um, or that you notice in your community? Let's not even talk about importance. Just name it. What are those things? And some people will call a tree by the actual name and other people will call it something different. Mm. But for the most part, you'll start to identify what a baseline is. So it's what the majority says. And those things are still done pretty much by culture, by community. Then you move into what is important to them. And so that's what we call the values Values, I've heard it termed recently, your values, what is what are the top things that are important to you that has nothing to do with money? And when you think about that, that would be what you value. Values are also about worth. So what will you do to protect what's important to you? So it's about what's important and what is it worth? When you think about your values in that way, it's easier to get somebody to move around or build or design, sustain, protect what is important to them versus what isn't. So when we say like, well, everybody has all these different ideas, usually in a community, because communities are formed by naturally protecting what's important to them, they you will see that for the most part, there will be very few outliers of people who are not protecting the shared values. Mm -hmm. So when you see conflict, what's usually happening is that there's some change there. And there can be like a myriad of reasons. It can be financial, just like we're seeing in the tennis court scenario. You've outpriced our capacity to get to what we value. It could be generational. We use it in this way. Pickleball is my favorite new conversation because it's annoying so many people, including tennis ball players. Yeah. I mean, tennis mm-hmm. players. Have I've, you been following I that? have. I haven't played it at all, but I've been seeing, you know, the change and, you know, changing tennis courts, the pickleball courts and changing kind of the 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 community to be towards this game that is kind of interesting, I have to say. Just the change it's I'm seeing. Yeah. It's disruption. Like Tennis players hate and the residents hate the noise of pickleball. It has a very certain pitch. Pickleball players are coming out of the woodworks like they're lining up and keeping regular tennis players from being able to play in their normal time and space. And so it's a disruption for the same premise. Well, it's interesting at that same time, I because also pickleball, I think a lot of people have gotten into it because it is so accessible. You know, it's something that you don't have to be physically fit to do, whereas tennis... Man, you start, you know, serving a few times and you realize how unfit you are when you're playing tennis. But pickleball has been something that's more accessible as far as the age gap. And I think obviously we'll talk a little bit later in this episode about, you know, kind of how we connect to old and young and everything in between. But there is, there's always going to be, you know, these pros and cons to something that is new in the space. And I think pickleball is showing that in such an interesting way within the sports realm. I love the conversation because... It's another point of disruption in a community, right? Like we would all, if you, if you have the nuance 
of, um, or if you lacked the nuance of sports that you play with a ball and paddle, right? You would say, oh, it's all tennis, right? It's all in that one thing we know. But like pickleball has created like badminton or uh, ping pong, right? Like a whole subculture, a subgenre that is that is really pushing through a disruption. And so that goes back to your point of like having different ideas. And so how do we use it? I don't know the answer to that, but it's a, a fascinating thing to watch. And they're ultimately, they're all protecting. If you said you wanted to shut down the courts altogether, all of those people would say we value the mm-hmm. courts. Well, yeah, some people are going to be able to find value in that court, whether, whether it be, you know, playing tennis, pickleball, you know, um, I used to go to my local tennis court and I played baseball and I got to throw, you know, a baseball against the wall. And obviously it came back to me, people bringing their dogs there, people being able to bring their children there, they run around in a fenced in place. So there are so many other options that you can do outside of just tennis. But when it becomes, all right, we're shutting this down or not shutting it down, but saying we're closing the gate unless you have a certain economic ability to pay to get into these gates then you start closing down parts of the community that people are using more or are using more than just say tennis. Another cool solution as I was listening to that, listening to you is like the municipality had a neat opportunity to incorporate service to others as a part of their metric. And so if the $17 per match was something that needed to be fixed, then could you have offered some type of exchange where like, we will lower that rate if you come once a week and work at our tennis, you know, work in the tennis scheduling office or, you know, you support at this clinic or they they could have done other things. Yeah, I think that's I'm glad you say that because I know in a lot of your uh, work, you talk about currency just is and you mentioned it earlier. Currency just isn't money. It can also be time. It can also be, you know, our abilities, our skills, you know, our interests. There's so many other ways that we can trade things and, you know, get to what we want to get without having to say, here's five bucks, here's $17. And I think that's so important that people realize that because we've gotten so far away from that aspect of me and you can just talk and be like, hey, I could, you know, I'm into woodworking, I can build this for you and you can do this for me. And like, cool, we didn't have to exchange any money whatsoever. Yeah. Are you really into woodworking? I am. I love it. I love it. I just actually built a a wood planter box for all my plants. So I'm excited to build another one now. (laughs) So like you're really good at the three-dimensional thinking, huh? Like you can get those mitered corners. Oh, well, (laughs) well, to be fair, I do have to make something once and then realize, oh yeah, I made that wrong to make it right the second time. But yeah, I, I, I like the ability and like I was talking about earlier before we started recording, just the ability to see things and having the space to see things is so important to how I work. Yeah, that's cool. I like that. Um, I forgot what you were asking me, but yeah, because I got caught up in the, I was like, oh, he does woodworking <laughs> too. That's pretty cool. Sorry. No, Sorry, well, let's, let's connect this back to tennis here. Um, obviously, you have listed Serena and Venus as two individuals you'd like to connect with, you know, bringing in a, a good friend of the show from past episodes, Cecil Harris. Uh, he wrote a book about them, has connections with them. But he also in that book about Serena and Venus talked about the impact they have on the sport and in specifically black communities. What role have you seen good role models have on the development of a community? I'm dumbfounded because um, there are so many that just went through my mental Rolodex. Philosophically, our lives don't come with manuals. And 
we need examples. For me, um, part of my desire to, I'm using my air quotes, pioneer in communications and to use communications in a scientific way was due to Zora Neale Hurston, who was a remarkable anthropologist. And her writings were so in-depth. They were very colorful for me growing up. And I could see how she was using disaggregation. She was going into communities, collecting stories, collecting narratives, but she was doing it verbatim. So she wouldn't edit their their language style in a way that we understood. She, she made it in a mirror. And it gave me such deep insight into who these people were. And they were people like me and they were closer connected due to the time um, to slavery and the transatlantic slave trade. So they had living relatives who had come over from, from Africa. And those things are very fascinating to me. Another person that I really looked up to was Oprah Winfrey. She t- used technology to build this empire, but for communications. And I firmly believe that People like Oprah opened a path for the Obamas to be the first Blacks in in office. It was her ability to use empathy and to be very open in empathy for everyone that really held a lot of space for me. And I I saw a lot of myself through her. Um, people like Arthur Ashe, who was a brilliant tennis player, black tennis player, was able to do that and really challenge these ideas of his sexuality and like, you know, and like what that meant. Today, I mean, we still have other living persons who just do remarkable things. And I think as, again, as a person of color, the living role models or having role models are people that have done things before you is important because it shows that if it exists once, mm-hmm. just once, it can happen again. If they can do it, so can I. If they can do it, so can I. And here's the deal. Like, I didn't even want to be them. It wasn't like I was saying, like, I want to be president or I want to be a TV magnate. You know, it wasn't anything like that. It was that if they could fulfill something that they had in their mind's eye, then so could I. Mm-hmm. And that level, what I don't think we talk about enough are what you just said in your development is the failures to get there. Americans have a lot of hubris in this idea that we're not allowed to fail. Failure is not an option. Wrong. There's no room for error. Wrong. That's the only way to make it through it. And I don't think that we talk enough about the stop points in which you know, that was a pivot for me. And I had to completely change my trajectory from what I had in my mind's eye. But role models, good role models, accessible role models should allow that for you. That's my mother. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, no, even I mean, talking to someone or talking about someone like Oprah, you know, she made that success that now people know her as Oprah later in life, you know, she had to go through a lot of those failures, a lot of those roadblocks, a lot of those having to find the sledgehammers and tearing down the wall herself to get to that point. And I think a lot of people just look at the success of Oprah and say, well, it was easy for her, but then not actually realizing the amount of work that they have to put in to get to that point. And I think that's so important. And it's something also very important to see people of color, to see marginalized people having success in a way that 
white men have had for the entirety of history. Like I can look at anybody in history and say, he made it, so so can I. He made it, so can I. He made it, so can I. I can do that for the next five to 10 to 100 years and have enough examples. But the fact that we're getting more and more examples of people that have not had those same examples is super important. So somebody like Chris Eubanks becoming successful, he didn't win Wimbledon, but the fact that he was able to be competitive against some of the best in the world, the fact that, you know, he's still young, he still has ways to go. You know, I know he was talking about possibly quitting tennis and going into analyzing, you know, he wanted to give up on the sport. He don't want to give up, but he wanted to give up on playing the sport and to see like, hey, now he's back. Now he's being a role model for these people. You know, these people are willing to travel one to two hours because they saw Chris Eubanks make it. So once again, so can I. And I think that is so important. I think that's so missed when we talk about, for example, uh, this example, sports. It's like highlighting those people that are putting in the work and are making it and they can be good role models to their community and inspire people to make their communities better and to provide these opportunities that they might not have had and bring the next Chris Eubanks up. What's really cool too is that time and space that you talk about. So like we talk about the idea that a white male can look at history and pull up any point and and recognize, excuse me, and recognize, yeah, I can do that. I have these examples. But the truth is, is that colonization in the United and the Americas has only been for about 500 years. And so there were centuries before that of great history and stories. And I think that that is the neat thing about talking to people like you and having coffee and water cooler talks <laughs> is that we get to now we don't have to stop at the 500 year mark. We don't do it in Greek mythology. We don't do it in Roman history. We talk about things and we champion people that were 2000 years ago. And so the same thing can happen here. We just have to talk about that. Well, yeah. And I think you, we got to like find people that are willing to talk about it too. I just listened to this podcast about the Benin bronzes, which I think it was a Ethiopian colony. Benin is actually in West Africa, bordered by Togo to the West and Nigeria to the East. Way back in the day, like they created these like fantastic walls that rivaled the Great Wall of China. But England came in and colonized them and made them out to be these quote unquote savages. But it wasn't until that their art was released to the world that people were like, there's no way savages can make something that beautiful. And these people were never savages. It was just, you know, PR back in old history that said, hey, they're savages, so we can go over there and kill them, which is such a fucked up thing to do. Everybody in this world is creating something beautiful. It's just... How is it being advertised to the world and who is advertising it to the world? Right. Totally agreed. That's the other thing that role models can do is they they certify that. With 8 billion people on the world, on the planet today, I don't know like how many of our stories will be told or recorded, but I do think the 21st century offers a really neat opportunity to kind of like get ahead of it. And we get to do creative ways of storing information, maybe not through hieroglyph and <laughs> art, but I hope that that doesn't go away. Uh, I would like to welcome to the show cultural communications expert, Maya Ford. Maya and our team are the driving force behind the Ford Momentum, an organization whose mission is to promote the practice of communication as a science by blending the principles of cultural inclusion, data science, and visual creativity, all rooted in time-tested design techniques to help build stronger, more vibrant communities. Maya, welcome to Water Cooler Talk. 
Thank you. Glad to be here. So you have cited the renowned and celebrated author Bell Hooks as a major influence to your work. You know, she was an individual, I believe, way ahead of her time who emphasized the importance of intersectionality, recognizing people's identities and experiences are multifaceted. And, you know, we're not just based on a single defining factor. She was also someone who focused on love as a transformative force, you know, the belief that love overcomes. How has her work helped you define your own work? Bell Hooks had language that I hadn't seen before in a syntax that was made for me. Interestingly, she and I share the same birthday. So maybe... (laughs) Bell Hooks was sent ahead of me so that she could pioneer this path and I could, I'm the tail end, or maybe I'm like the middle, maybe like we're a centipede and she's somewhere, mm-hmm. you know, along first third and I'm somewhere behind her. I don't know which, which <laughs> number, like set of legs I'd be, but she was really remarkable. And Um, One of the things that I appreciated about her was her use of mathematics and scientific quantifiable data. We're told um, in this era, because the the concept of data has been used against to be, you know, to be used to tell stories against people like myself, that that data is a bad thing. I think that there's nothing in the on the on the planet that's good or bad. It just is, and it depends on how we use it. And responsibly used and used with love, we can use data in an appropriate way. She did that. And she very thoughtfully provoked and challenged even the the components of scarcity and fear that we as a culture have within ourselves. And I thought that's so loving. It's like she was um, bold enough to challenge me to stop suffering. And I listened and I'm very grateful to her. It's been so crazy since we've become connected. I've been hearing her name come up so much. Like, you know, when like you want to get a car and then you start seeing that car everywhere, like that's what's been happening. You know, I picked up two of her books, All About Love and uh, The Will to Change. So I'm excited to get into those. But it also seemed like her work really focused on overcoming together. You know, together we are better. But to come together, we need to do a better job in understanding one another and where we are coming from and what we are bringing when we are coming together. You know, for example, like not everyone's going to come to the party bringing the same thing, bringing, you know, their same selves, you know, someone who is black isn't going to bring the same lived experiences as someone who is white, you know, same as someone who is straight or gay, Christian or Muslim, whatever may, you know, define what makes you, you. And I think it's important to say that there's nothing wrong with that. You know, we're all bringing in these different lived, shared or lived experiences, but there has to be awareness that that is happening. And I feel like that's the constant struggle with connection is sometimes we forget that you are having a very different lived experience than myself. And I might not be as aware when we're coming together, having a conversation that these stories, as you're, you know, looking through them, as you're reading them, as you're preparing for them, you're going to have a very different perspective. And I think we need to be more aware of that as we build this bridge of connection that I think we really need right now. Agreed. It's about control. Mm. I don't have to control your perspective. I don't have to control your experience. I'm totally capable, Adam, of looking at you, accepting you, and even having inquiry. I can be curious without controlling. 
It's a fundamental part of the American culture to need to own. We we have to like have it and own it and control it. And this is a very dangerous uh, part of our culture. It forces us to be very extreme. So, and you see that bifurcation in our politics right now, that's a control component, right? Like you have to be Republican or you have to be Democrat. It's a control factor. And that's not the same as choosing a side. That's not the same as no one's saying like you have to be wishy-washy, but that lack of critical thought through consciousness and scenarios and understanding is, is a problem. And it's also, you're right. You know, I often, often come back to this. I am someone who's very blessed to be a global, a globalista, which, you know, I'm, I'm having to challenge my own thoughts about that and how I impact the world harm that's going on. But I'm intentionally like considerate of strife around the world, the Sudanese, the, um, you know, we see constantly Israel and Palestine. And I have friends who are Jewish, whose family live in occupied, you know, who live in Israel. And I have friends who are Palestinian. And so like, there are all of these challenges, um, same thing in Guatemala and Panama in you know, in Mexico. And so I, I'm constantly looking at where I sit when I'm in a space with these people and understanding that I can be empathetic. I can ask questions about their perspectives, but I'll never live those moments with them. I don't have the relationships with their elders, with their, their cousins, their family, their friends. And I also don't have to control it. I don't have to have an opinion about everything. You know, Americans are are really good about initiating our ideals of right and wrong. And it's um it's obnoxious. What Bell Hooks did was asked us to be aware of that, like you're saying, and to slow your roll and to mind your business and be empathetic and loving towards yourself and saying, you don't have to have a solution, right? Like I don't have to fix the Palestine Israel conflict. What I have to do is support my friends who are Israeli and my friends who are Palestinian in self-love. And when we're together, is there an opportunity because they're a part of their own future? I think that's something that, I mean, within myself, I'm struggling with, especially within the space that I'm in and having these conversations with, you know, so many uh, wonderful individuals like yourself, where we're talking about so many of these things. Like, I always feel like I need to know everything. I need to understand everything. But really, as you know, what we're 85, 86, this will be the 86th episode uh, in, I've realized it's so much more important just to kind of listen to, you know, somebody who is dealing with these things, has these connections. That's why I think connection is so important. Having that opportunity to have people that are, you know, outside of your own in-group quotations on that and having the ability to listen. And like you were saying, asking questions is so important. And, you know, we'll talk, I want to talk about it later, because I have such a good question about asking the right questions. But a lot of the time, it's a lot better just to just shut up and listen, than try to, you know, having to put your opinion out there into the world. And I think a lot more people need to realize sometimes, yeah, just, hey, just back off a little bit, let other people speak. Maybe it's not your turn to speak yet. Because, Life is so nuanced and it's so difficult to understand every aspect of you can't. It's literally impossible to do so. You know, life is not black and white. It's 
every single color available. I know those praying mantis shrimps can see like so many more colors than everyone else. That what that's what life is, you know. It's this thing that, you know, each of us are seeing these certain colors, but then another person is seeing those might be seeing those same colors and we can connect on seeing those same colors, but they're also seeing other colors that we can't see and we need to respect that and understand that people are coming into the equation with a very different sense of what colors are available for us to see. I totally agree. One thing I, I come back to in that is what we understand in communications as mirroring. My favorite quote ever is um, Rumi says, the, the one who has a friend needs not a mirror. And this is so powerful to me because using a mirror is that point of how we perceive our ourselves in the reflection. But a friend can do that earnestly and you don't need vanity in the space to do it with someone else to perceive you and whether your perception their perception of you is is beautiful or you got some you know spinach in your teeth <laughs> or you look like shrek in the morning which i do and you know <laughs> like i i just it's such a great thing to have a friend and that is that mirroring concept is what inquiry helps people to do so when you have connection and when you have the ability to use inquiry and bell hooks talks a lot about this then you're creating the space for mirroring. That then does a lot of other things through neurochemistry that we don't we do in seconds and we don't necessarily have language for. So it goes into various realms. It goes into the spirit realm, it comes into the tangible realm, and then perhaps like whole other elements that I have no language for. But what we know for sure is that it's also capable of inspiring and creating new opportunities, new neuropaths to create new ideas. And that's where solutions come from. So all of those elements are working on self-esteem. It's working on the ability to create and have opportunity for new ideas and solution finding. And if you're getting it right and you got a good safe space for mirroring, then it allows people to go out and take those ideas and practice them. It's it's so much more than what linear economics teaches you. And, and in the United States, we practice one form of economics, but there are many, many types of economics. And that's another fallacy, right? Like in the US, English is a very linear direct language. It's a, it's a business language, but other languages come with context. The love languages come with, with ideas. They, they're very floral, right? They even sound more poetic. They're slower. They have more words, not fewer. And all of these things are creating opportunities for mirroring. So there's science to it. I, I listen to folks and I'm like, yeah, that's, that's exactly right. Or what's also happening are these things. We don't see communication and our connection as a scientific nuance, but it's, there's a lot happening. Yeah, that's so interesting that you bring that up because our last guest, uh, Mark Williams, he talked about this mirror neuron system. Mirror neuron system obviously <laughs> sorry mark that we have and within our subconscious we just do things when we feel connected that we don't even realize like he used the example of he was giving this speech and all of the uh all the people in the front row were friends and he's like you guys are you guys friends 
And they're like, yeah, why? Because you're all sitting the same way. And it's just these things like we don't even think about that connect us as humans that whether you believe in souls or not, I think it's in your soul that we're connected and we have this just this ability to connect with anybody, but it does sometimes take a little more work than others. And I think that's so important. And I think that's something that I'm excited to read these books uh, by Bell Hooks and kind of really explore that more. You're dead on. And when we talked earlier about how people come with so many different ideas and like, how do you corral them? That's where that mirroring actually explains a lot of community. When you're in cultural communities, they're naturally mirroring. So the ideas usually aren't as far off as we might exclaim. Well, before we move on, myself and Water Cooler Talk have embarked upon a mission to give back to various parts of the community and those who have helped build our show to where it stands today. For each new episode of the podcast, the guests will bring with them a charity of their choice to represent. On the day of their episode going live, Water Cooler Talk will give a donation to that charity in honor of the guest, as well as a global platform to spread a message of love, hope, and togetherness. And we invite you, listening to this episode, to join in to help spread that message to your own personal audience. So Maya, your charity of choice for today's episode is Documented New York. Can you share with us the importance of their work and why it's vital to seek perspectives as we're talking beyond our own? My, I come from, um, my family's from Panama. My mother's American, my father's Panamanian. And I always thought that I had like a very linear a documented story coming, you know, with my family coming to the United States. And it turned out that it just wasn't linear at all. They just didn't tell me growing up. And the protection from that offered me a lot of safety because I didn't fear immigration in the way that many of my friends growing up did. And perhaps I should have, but I didn't because I just didn't know. And what, what documented did for me was give me news about things that are happening to persons who perhaps are undocumented. And whether our families are documented, are coming to the United States and are documented or not, no human is quote unquote illegal. That's absolutely ludicrous. And every human offers something to its community. So I felt that the language, their ability to shine light on very real scenarios in both economic, environmental, and emotional ways were very potent for my own understanding and learning. And I think they helped me just to be a better person. Most of their stories take place in New York, so I'm not in that market. But it does give me a sense of empathy and sympathy and how I can use appropriate language in complex scenarios in my own work. I work in a lot of border towns or spaces where persons are new to areas and they're often ignored. And so the concept of like being a quote unquote foreigner into a space and how you might be um, more vulnerable to abuses is really important. Mm -hmm. And I love them for it and I support them myself. And I like to get the word out because I think their work is about more than just persons who are undocumented in New York. They're about the human narrative and how we're all migrants somewhere at some point. Yeah, I like that. And I appreciate you sharing them on the show. I've added them to my water cooler talk news kind of resources, because I do think it's very important to kind uh, I mean, there's 300 million plus people in the US, you know, that call the US home. And I think the, the aspect of saying it's home is so important, because 
yeah, you're completely right. Nobody is illegal. I mean, people are just trying to survive. They're trying to get to the next day. And regardless of where they do that in the world, if they decide to do it in the US, that's home to them. And that's important. And kind of as we'll talk about in this next news story, the importance of having safety in home. And like, as you talked about being able to tether yourself to something and kind of being able to be yourself and express yourself and go out there and add something to the world. And I think it's important that those stories are told because those are stories that are happening just because it's not on CNN, it's not on Fox News, it's not on whatever kind of news source you use, doesn't mean those stories aren't happening. And I think it's important, especially journalism and independent journalism are so important in uh, this day and age. So I appreciate you sharing them on the show. Yeah, thank you. An interesting thing, my husband is Nigerian. And um, Nigerians, I mean, are world famous, globally known for the famous, uh, I'm a prince, send me, send me money emails, right? And there's, when you go to the country, I just got back, well, last year, I spent six months in Nigeria in a postgraduate program, and it was remarkable. And what I learned was that they are incredibly complex people. And so Nigerians in the United States bring so much more than their centuries of culture. They bring a deep amount of self-esteem that African-Americans need. So when we talk about foreign populations and like how we reflect and we integrate and vice versa, when I, as an American, as a Panamanian American, went to Nigeria, I brought whole flavors of things that my classmates and my in-laws needed to have for me. And so these things are, are a blessing to have, not a curse. And I think that working together um, in those spaces really helps us to understand more of that neuropathy. Like you're getting more ideas, you're expanding, not contracting. Yeah, I like that. All right. Well, are you ready to jump into our final news story of the episode here? Yep. Let's do it. This is from Cal Matters Commentary, August 15th, 2023. California cities lose money and harm citizens with poverty toes. In California, if you don't have enough money to pay for your parking tickets, the government may tow your car, sell it for pennies on the dollar, and lose the city hundreds in revenue along the way. Every year, tens of thousands of low-income Californians lose their vehicles simply because they cannot afford to pay for parking tickets. The city tows their cars not because they are currently parked illegally, but because their owners haven't paid past parking fines. The vehicles then run up storage fees at towing facilities, fees that low-income vehicle owners cannot afford to pay. As a result, cars are auctioned off, an outcome that not only punishes people for being poor, but takes away their lifelines for being able to climb out of poverty, especially in a car-centric state. In many areas, cities require owners to pay the entirety of their parking ticket debts, late fees, and towing fees before allowing them to retrieve their impounded vehicle from the tow yard. But for uh, those who already couldn't afford to pay the original parking ticket price tag, those same people aren't going to be able to pay hundreds or thousands of dollars in additional charges. In many cases, getting their car back from the tow yard would cost more than the car is worth. I think that's a very important point right there. As a result, their vehicles are sold out from under them at auctions for cents on the dollar permanently depriving access to a reliable transportation and digging a deeper economic hole. Absurdly so-called poverty toes don't even provide revenue to the cities that implement them. For example, a recent audit of San Diego's towing practices found that the average sale price of a vehicle towed for unpaid tickets was $526. But with towing and storage fees averaging $1,174, the city of San Diego loses money each time it tows a legally parked car for unpaid tickets. 
For 2023, the audit estimated that the city will lose over $300,000 on auction sales alone. In July of 2023, a California appellate court ruled that towing legally parked cars solely because the owners have unpaid parking tickets is not only unrelated to public safety, but also violates the California Constitution and the Fourth Amendment's protection against unreasonable seizures. Still, the uh, city continues to seize people's cars. The lose-lose practice that neither benefits the city nor its residents only benefits tow yards who are able to pocket excessive storage fees. Fortunately, a solution may be within reach. Assembly Bill 1082, introduced by member Ash Cholera, would prohibit towing or immobilizing a vehicle solely because of unpaid parking tickets. It would also increase the number of tickets someone can receive before a hold is placed on their registration. In addition, the bill establishes fair and reasonable payment plans so people can pay off their debt while retaining their car, ensuring that their economic lives are not upended. If passed, Assembly Bill 1082 would provide a measure of justice and relief to some of California's most financially strained residents, and it would be further evidence that trying to fund local governments on the backs of your poorest residents is a fool's errand. So Maya, correct me if I'm getting some information mixed up here, but you've had a car repossessed, is that correct? Yep. Can you share with us and the listeners like what that experience is like and the feelings of it? Um, well, I guess the, the first sentiment is embarrassment and shame because it implies that like you didn't do the right thing to uphold your part of the bargain on the loan. I think some of that is true, but it doesn't really give air to circumstances and like why. In a city like Houston, I don't believe that the size of the municipality can manage all that it needs to do to better to like appropriately support its residents. So it can't get money out fast enough. And um, ours was my scenario was post Hurricane Harvey. I was a small business owner and all of my contracts stopped because of the hurricane and I didn't have savings. And so you can't pay your bills and you know, you make too much to qualify for some emergency elements and you don't have enough paperwork to prove other things because you're self-employed and It just makes all of these machinations very complex. In smaller municipalities, like the one we're talking about in this story, it's absurd. Um, And it's due to bad policy that you have such rules and bylaws that don't help the residents to actually be accountable to you. So having been someone who's a part of that in a city like Houston you kind of shrug it off because you're one of millions of people and the municipality doesn't do a good job of like helping anyway. And if you lose, you lose. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's unfortunate because I just couldn't compete with nature. I wasn't necessarily irresponsible. I didn't have money. And I think, I mean, I I don't think, I know some people are going to read this story, listen to us talk about this and say, well, this could all be solved by just paying your parking ticket. Why can't you just pay your parking ticket? And I think you kind of miss the nuance of that, of like you were kind of saying in your own experience, like sometimes people just can't. They have so many other factors in their life that are barring them from being able to make that payment. You know, as the story said, like sometimes to go and get their car from the impound, it costs way more than the actual price of the car that they paid. And that's something that I think those people that are going to look at the story and be like, well, just pay your bills. I mean, that's not that hard. Aren't going to take into account that not everybody has the economic freedom to go and just pay, you know, $200, $300 to pay those fines. I remember I went to Chicago and got um, 
I mean, oh my gosh, all the signs in Chicago are so freaking confusing. So you never know where to park. But I got my car booted. And, you know, I was like, I need to be home for meetings in like a day. I mean, it's a seven hour drive from Chicago to Minnesota. I was like, I need to be home. Like there's only so much I can do. So I had to put, you know, like a $296 fee on a credit card because I didn't have that money to be able to say, I can get out of the situation and not have it impact my life. Ouch. This story was hit home for a few reasons. Um, The first, so I want to rewind if I can. There's this concept in poverty, right? So poverty is a condition and it's usually a, a condition that has been placed upon people. It's not something that people did that they placed themselves in. Mm-hmm. Born into poverty or there's um, there are three core components that lead that every person who suffers from poverty is under. The first is that the population doesn't have equitable access to tools and resources. The second is that the policies in place allow for that inequitable distribution of tools and resources. And the third is that the population is usually, well, not usually, is always not leveraging their natural geographic assets. So two of the three have to do with tools and resources and policies. So that implies that it is something that is um, placed upon people. The third one, the third kind of pillar of not using your geographic assets is something that the people can control. What we do in our work is we really focus on all three of those pillars and we help people first to understand what their natural tool, what their tools and resources are and how they're not being equitably distributed. So the first premise is that you're dealing with a population who's, who's already economically not able to, to provide for those elements. I'm asking questions like, why are they having to drive? Period. Single occupancy vehicles are very expensive to own and maintain. And then if you are not living within the the laws, the quote unquote laws to sustain and maintain that, it could cost you even more. So first of all, why do they have to go outside of their three to five mile radius to be able to negotiate their day-to-day business? That's an element of poverty. The second is when there are fines, why are those fines placed and using second and third party groups outside of the municipality to fulfill? That's the towing agencies, so on and so forth. While I'm not a fan of fulfillment via boot, at least the boot is handled by the municipality and doesn't move X, Y, or Z. And you can kind of move fines and you can make an agreement with the person, with the resident or the owner of the vehicle in a certain time and space. That sounds like a whole gamut. That's a political back room mafia deal right there, right? To go through that many channels and for it to cost the municipality money. So then it doesn't benefit anyone. And then the third component is out of geography. If you had natural offsets, like we all know that that single occupancy vehicles aren't doing great for the environment either. And so why are you not, or could you be investing, how much money is that bringing? When the people don't have the money and your fines and you're holding up jobs, could you be investing in something different? Walkable and bikeable communities, 
trams, other ways to people move. So the policies, the lack of geographic kind of, you know, ownership in the space and the the inequitable access to tools and resources that the municipality is supposed to provide proves that it's set up for poverty. So then I question whether or not they want these people to be impoverished. The answer is yes. Why? And what are the mechanisms that they're using? What I would also look at is the points of recidivism. So if these people now can't get to work, how many of them were in a part of the prison industrial complex already or were on their way? Now they can't work. They can't pick up their kids. They can't go visit Nana and Pop-Pop. They can't do all of these other things, which then chain have a chain reaction. And it leads into this, this process where the people are being used and they the municipality or the state is making more money off of them being delinquent than it would make off of them ever yeah. being good citizens. Yeah, and that's the tough thing. There's this really old saying, uh, it's, a converse, it's a conversation between like a king and a pope. And the king says, you keep them stupid and I'll keep them poor. And that's the best way to control everyone around. They won't revolt. I mean, if they're having to spend so much time trying to figure out, for instance, how to get to work, how to go through all those loopholes to get their car back or find other ways to get to work, they don't have enough time to actually focus on the real issues that are impacting the entirety of everything we do in this world. And I think this is a case of that. It's Let's make it as confusing as possible to try to get your car back. Let's make it as expensive as possible to get your car back because then you don't have enough time to, I mean, I think we saw it during the pandemic when people actually had time, you know, we saw it with the George Floyd protest here in Minnesota, like when people actually had time to go out, they didn't have to worry about being at work. They didn't have to worry about making money to survive every day, to put food on their table, to, you know, put a, a roof over their head. They actually had time to go out and say their piece and talk about the issues that are very important that, I mean, I talk a lot about the rich versus the poor, talking about these issues that actually matter. Like, yes, white versus black, you know, gay versus straight, you know, all these things that they want us focus on, they do matter, but they're not as important as the wealthy continuing to accumulate wealth and for us to have less and less of that wealth and continuing to have to be, you know, subservient to People like Elon Musk to Jeff Bezos to Bill Gates, all these people that are taking way more of the piece of the pie than they would ever need and saying, well, you have the crumbs, right? You're fine with that, right? Otherwise, I could take away the crumbs and you could have nothing. So which one is it? The crumbs or nothing? And it, that, that's so, so it's not the way to live and it's not how humans are supposed to live. But that's what's happening. And that's what's happening with something like Poverty Toes. Yeah. So poverty is a system. It's an intentional system and it's not based. It's there's a complete misnomer that it's based upon people's inability, like people's mismanagement. Mm -hmm. It's a system. Yeah. At a minimum, the municipality hasn't done what it needed to do to keep people in their communities so that they didn't need to use those vehicles at all. No, I mean, we've talked about recently with Antonia Melchik, we talked about like walkable cities and how people were so against it. I mean, you should be able to go to your house, to your work, to a library, to a coffee shop, to a grocery store, to a hospital, to whatever you may need in a walkable distance, in a bikeable distance, in a distance where you don't have to invest a lot of money into a vehicle. Agreed. Uh, but you do, I think you, you do have an amazing quote. And once again, you'll probably hear it and be like, oh, that sounds great. That's me. Uh, on how fair gains from good work are not being fairly distributed. 
you talk about being in this loop of, you know, being the workforce, but never the leadership force, and how often people don't realize the severity of an issue uh, until they are personally faced with the economic shock of whatever it may be. And I mean, personally, from my experience, I, I see this a lot in Republican culture, a policy that may hurt others is fine until it hurts me. How do we continue to integrate diverse perspectives, bridge the gap, connect right to left, old to young, rich to poor, or even just begin that conversation? Because, you know, for example, as a millennial, a big issue that I find, and I think a lot of my friends and a lot of people within this age group find, is that we're at an age group, we're at an time in our lives where we should be the ones being able to help set the policy to help the future generations. But we're continually butting heads with the older generation that seem to, you know, be missing the mark on issues we're facing, you know, the issues Gen Z are facing, Uh, not understanding, for example, the cost of living and being a functioning member of society in a time where, you know, I know you've talked about it, but a lot of boomers had government subsidized living that helped them get their house, that get their college education. That doesn't exist anymore, but they're like, oh yeah, you just pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Our bootstraps aren't the same as your bootstraps. And there's just that disconnect. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's really hard to chat, like to uh, have straight conversations with people who are delusional. I've never been able to figure out how to do that. In part because the delusions, like it's, I'll say it this way. I don't know if you've ever been to a place where like everybody's high, but you're not, Mm -hmm. where everybody's drunk, but you're not. And they're all having this great time and you just ain't part of the party. And it's not fun because you're not in the same wavelength that they are. And I think that I feel that way about leadership currently. Leadership historically has been about the patriarchy, which is this idea that one very strong person can go and lead the way for everyone else. And I think if we could slow down, you might see that that may have been about access to tools and resources. The 21st century has been really phenomenal because it has made the playing field more open for more of us to have access to tools and resources So then you have more opportunities for more leaders. And I think that leveling has also brought an opportunity for some people to see, man, this is great. I get more help and we can build something together. Mm -hmm. And it has threatened other people who feel like if they come and do this, then I won't be necessary. So the answer to me is how do you get people to know that everyone is important here? The role might look different. The need might be a slightly different, but the goal is still the same. And where the United States, I believe, holds a lot of power compared to other, what one of the things that makes us great compared to other first world nations is that we've never had to infight state to state. Well, since the Civil War, we have, (laughs) right? Whereas when you're looking at places like Russia and Ukraine, right? Like they're neighbors. And Europe has had infighting from literally neighboring border to border. So has Central America. The United States hasn't for well over 100 years. And so I think that this is really important in this idea that our federal government does actually help us to be more united comparatively. 
the way that we include other generations, and this isn't just our prior generations, it's our future as well, is to make sure that we're leveraging the best of what people have at every point. Who I am today, approaching 50, is a different um, type of skill set that you might need that I didn't have when I was 30. I am a killer in the negotiating (laughs) space. If you need that dollar, I can get it for you. I don't know how, but I'm not afraid to challenge difficult conversations and talk about the economic reasons why this is important, it's fair, it's balanced, and this is what you're going to get out of it. Whereas when I was 30, I felt very apprehensive. I had it in me. I had the confidence, but I didn't have the lived experience and the know-how. So today, my role approaching 50 is to guide the generations that are coming up and to be on their team. I sit on Adam's team to help to negotiate in that way. What does Adam need? I can help Adam to be his voice in that negotiating space. Whereas 20 years ago, I would have been with Adam being like your workhorse and helping to like get to the point where we had something worth negotiating. So it's it's just different time and different space. And hopefully from my mouth to God's ears, when I'm 80 and I feel like I have some talent, even if I can't figure out what the next Snapchat is, I will have something that can be of benefit to Adam and to Adam's firm or to Adam's community. And Adam's community wouldn't feel like I'm useless. So I think that every human has the desire to feel needed and useful. If I hold on to that for control, my error. Mm-hmm. And fear is the is the enemy of progress. And pe- people people want to help. We're naturally helpful people. And I think you find good people when people that realize that I can bring help to a situation, but I can only bring help to a situation if I have the ability to help in that situation. Uh, you know, because our first inclination is always to help. You see something struggling on the side of the road, maybe it's a car accident. The first thing you're going to do, I think as far as like, I want to imagine most people would do like pull over and figure out how can I help this person? Like, what can I do? Like, what's that first thing to do? And I think that's where a lot of kind of millennials speaking for the millennial generation are seeing it as like, we're willing to help. We're willing to help the people above us. We're willing to help the people below us. But the spaces that we can get in to do true impactful help are so closed off that, you know, going back to the sledgehammer thing we talked about earlier, it's like, I need as many sledgehammers as possible, but I'm not getting that help I need. I mean, we're seeing it. I know we talked about the impact of voting, but if young people aren't voting, how are we going to change those things? You know, how are those things changing? They're not changing if people aren't actually speaking up to say something. And it goes back to, you know, I'm working, you know, three to four jobs at a time just to be able to afford to live. And going back to what we talked about, not having the economic ability to go out and fight for myself and fight for the group I've created for myself and my friends and my coworkers and my family. You know, if I don't have the time to do that, how am I making those changes? How am I going to go into a situation and say, this is who I am when I'm so exhausted by everything else just to get to that point. And I know you got to keep, you know, pushing forward and being that workhorse, but sometimes it's just not the healthy way to do it. And most of the times it's not the healthy way to do it. And I think that's one of the issues that we're seeing is, all right, just because you had it easy doesn't mean everyone else 
had it easy. And I understand like you worked hard and I'm not trying to take away the fact that you worked hard, but you also have to understand that people have, going back to that first story, people have very different journeys and very different obstacles in the way that are going to affect their ability to be successful and to be a successful part of this community of the United States of America. You brought up so many important things, Adam. Um, Malcolm X says that non-participation is a form of protest. Mm. And one of the things that you address that's really important is production. The United States economic system is based on production and consumption. It's very linear. There's nothing in between, which is why it's not working. So millennials um, have really grown up in a space where like technology started to cover a lot of the basic needs it didn't really, but it, it did in a hollow way, but it, it started to show like the way that some of these things could be taken off our plate. Raising millennials was really interesting for me because I spent probably 40% more time with my children than my parents did with me growing up. I used to have to be in the library almost every night of the week for school or, you know, information access was a big deal growing up for me. And by the time my own children were born, we had internet and we had computers in every room. And so like I could be doing homework with them and cooking at the same time. But it was Mm -hmm. those were distinctively different operational components for my parents when I was growing up. So I I think that those things um, created this idea of what life is for for millennials, rightfully so. The flip side to that is that it was a very hollow concept because you can use the sausage, you can eat the sausage, but you have to learn how to make the sausage. And this is a space that humanity will still always have to do. So technology can spit it out, but you still have to know how it's done because the electricity is not going to hang out forever. It's We're starting to see that. Millennials have a false sense of confidence in that ideal, but the ideal is fundamentally still built upon production and consumption. So now you're at a crossroads between, I know that I shouldn't have to be working this hard for this really basic thing, but I also think that I need to figure out how to create the infrastructure that suits me for it. I shouldn't have to work four jobs to create this one basic thing to fulfill the same quality of life that I had growing up. Remember what we started off with? If it exists once, mm, it means mm-hmm. it can be done. So we proved that you can work smarter, not harder, to access a very good quality of life. It doesn't seem sustainable because the system is forcing you to behave the same way as pri- as before that, that line in the sand. So the question therein lies, what will you do? And... What do you value enough to force the system to change? It's already happening. You're seeing it through language and gender nonconformity conversations. You're seeing it through workforce conversations and gig economy. You're seeing it through um, our overuse and overdependence of technology and not enough interconnectivity in the natural stance and like the natural order of socialization. Mm-hmm. You're seeing it in our interdependence of, this is an extreme, but gig economy labor, like picking up our groceries and such. It's a smarter way for distribution, but is it equitable? 
Right. So like we should be able to say, yeah, we don't need grocery stores for our entry anymore. We need grocery stores to be distribution centers that X amount of people will go in and do that as jobs, but you should pay them equitably. You should pay them $5 an hour to do that. Hello. Right. So like we're, we're caught in, we're caught in these old ideals of working on, on having a good life on the backs of others suffering. It's inappropriate. What will we do? That has nothing. The government is us, whether we vote or not. It's a reflection. It's a mirror of us. What will we do? Yeah, I think it really goes back to, and that was a wonderful way to explain that, by the way. That was perfect. But it goes back to kind of what you're saying, like currency doesn't need to be the currency we think it is. So it's like, yeah, all right, you're going to the grocery store. Oh, your neighbor needs something from the grocery store. You're already going there. Why can't you just add that onto your list and maybe, hey, they can take out your trash every Tuesday? You know, so I think a part of that is having these conversations and uh, being more aware of what your community is as far as like talking about technology. We talked about this last episode, putting down the phones and like talking to people and not, except the only thing you should keep your phone on for is listening to this conversation and listening to this podcast. Of course, everything else, put it down, put it down. That doesn't matter. <laughs> and call your loved ones if they're far away. Just exactly. Check and having, you know, those connections and you talked about your diverse group of friends and getting out there and, you know, finding the confidence in yourself to, you know, go see a movie by yourself. And maybe along the way, you'll, I was just watching um, How To with Jeff Wilson. It's a, it's How To with John Wilson. Jeff Wilson is a running back for the Miami Dolphins. Really good documentary out about New York, kind of. And he met these people that just love the movie Avatar. And so they get together and it was, it was so kind of cool to see these people get together and be so excited about something that you might seem like, oh, that's kind of weird. But really, when you talk to these people, you're like, oh, this is really cool. Like they get together, they have these parties, they only bring like blue food and blue drinks and, you know, they're learning the Navi language together. And that's connection. You're connecting over these things that aren't rooted in politics, that aren't rooted in, obviously, you know, those things matter, but you're finding connection outside of these things that are dividing us. And I think that's so important and something that we really need to focus on if we want to move to a better society that does mirror our internal souls. I think that's what's scaring Americans today, and I'm glad that we're afraid of it, is this idea that the mirror, the reflection that we see of ourselves is not authentic to who we want to be. Even before President Obama, you know, and before President Trump, I think Trump, President Trump was so visceral that it hurt my feelings. I just didn't want to believe that that was the America that we're in. It wasn't a reflection of me. Even the people who were so openly voicing him were not a reflection of people that I felt proud of. That hurt my feelings as, as an American, you know? So I think it's a good thing to sit with this idea that we're not perfect we're not the bee's knees, right? Like there we're not we're not the only people on the planet. We have a lot that we need to work on too, but giving ourselves some grace, giving ourselves the opportunity to be more introspective, and in order to do that, you need safety. And that's where I think you know, if I could do one thing, it would be to create safe spaces like you're doing for people to be able to sit and stay in the room. 
I'm not always good in moments of conflict at being able to like stay in the room. I start having like a physical reaction. I start sweating. I get fidgety. My nose <laughs> flares like a bull and my eyebrows, you know? And so I'm, I'm having like a vast vagal reaction. For me, it's probably better to have challenging conversations outdoor in nature where I can move my body. Like, let's go for a walk and talk about something more complex that, you know, that might challenge my ego or yours. And then if I need to run ahead a little bit and take a breath, then I can, you know, wait. Or if I stand behind, then I can catch up to you. We're allowed to do anything we want and be creative in it. It doesn't have to be at some boardroom with a suit and tie and my hair like in a certain way. Like we're allowed. Think of Working on those audio dips for future episodes. But in the meantime, Maya said, think of Star Trek. You know, like we're closer (laughs) to that than not. Yeah. And I think that it goes back to what Bell Hook says is that it requires love. Because at the end of the day, when you move the economics, when the planet ejects us, when we're at the moment, I think about those poor people in Lahaina, Hawaii, drink the Garden of Eden for most of us. And at their last moments, when they're forced between a wall of fire, or rocky waters, were they thinking, God damn Republicans, those lame Democrats, like what were, you know, or were they thinking about their loved ones or the grace that it took? Like, who are we when the, when it really matters? When this, yeah, no, I, that's something I really like about the show. And I sometimes even forget for myself is, I mean, connection is so much more than just your ideals and your beliefs and like, you know, part of the show is connecting with people on a different way because I personally, I felt like the way we are connecting obviously isn't working. I mean, people are angry. I mean, I think you perfectly said Trump was a reflection of people being angry. Biden is a reflection of people just wanting to go back to normalcy. You know, Obama was a reflection of people wanting change, wanting something different. And I even forget that sometimes because I'm like, well, this doesn't make sense. Like, why are people doing this? Like, why would you want to do this? Why would you want to hurt people? Why would you want to continually put people down? And understanding like where is their fear coming from? Where is their ability or their thought process on, well, I don't care about that person. Like, why are they thinking about that? Like, that's so important because I generally, I truly believe everybody is good. I believe, you know, there's that small zero zero point zero one percent that people are born. Some people are born bad. I mean, I think that's Uh, very fair to say, but I believe 99.999% of people are born good. It's just something that's happened throughout their life, either once, twice, or a million times that have changed their perspective, have changed how they view the world, how they treat other people. And that's kind of that root cause that we really need to get to and understand. It's like, okay, so your family struggled, but you made it out. And so now you might not be as supportive to poor people as you should be, but it's like, you were once there. And you understood what those people felt. So why can't you get into that empathy and understand them again? I think we need to do a better job. And we just need to constantly remind each other that connection exists and connection is easy. It's hard at the same time, but it's also easy. It's like talking about your favorite movie, talking about, I really like Avatar. And now I found an Avatar group where, you know, we eat, you know, blue cake together and like having those connections and having those beautiful moments that say, this is what humanity is all about. But we get so caught up in these things because we're living in fear because we're in a situation where 
yeah, we're looking in the mirror. We, we're not liking what we're seeing. And instead of figuring out how to fix that, let's just project and let's just push that on to someone else because that's a lot easier. That's a lot easier than doing the internal work and understanding why don't I like myself? Why am I living in fear? And making those changes. Even like, you know, I was talking about earlier, like as a millennial working these multiple jobs, it's hard to go out there. And then you're like, you know, sometimes you, there's other ways to do it. You're doing it in different ways. It doesn't have to be going out and protesting. It doesn't have to be going out and voting. Those things are all important, but there's other ways and you have to find those ways and you have to find happiness in those ways. Mm-hmm. You just took me to church. Because <laughs> it's all true, Adam, right? I would recommend building your toolkit. You said like you don't always know that it's happening. So it's hard to do the work. It's hard to conceive the work like organize it, practice it, Mm -hmm. you know, get the outcomes of it and then like see those outcomes all in one kind of like a movie in 30 minutes because it's happening. Sometimes it's happening over six months or a year. There's just millions of variables in there. And so one thing that I always advise is getting your personal toolkit in order because a toolkit, a toolbox has a lot of different tools. So, you know, you don't use a jackhammer to get spinach out of your teeth. You use that for like big jobs. So a toolkit, a life toolkit could look like having a set of mentors. My mentors, I've always pursued mentorship since I start, I really got serious about my career at about 28. And I intentionally sought diverse perspectives. So in gender, age, uh, like practice, of, like field of practice and nation of origin, because I knew that those perspectives were going to have something to do with getting me to where I am today. And at 28, I didn't know, I didn't know what I was going to be, but I knew who I was going to be. So I didn't know that I would do it through communications as a science. I didn't know I'd start this business and like go on this whole trajectory of moving into communities in this way. But I do know that I was very good at the fundamentals of nature and humans. And I just needed to move that together, probably through marketing or something like that. And then um, the other tools that I have are that I always go for certifications. I'm constantly using query. I'm constantly re-educating myself. So I invest, I, I self-invest and I've done that since before it became popular in, uh, in you know, these cool platforms yep. like Coursera and such. I would just go to a community college and sign up for a class, just one, you know, or take, you know, some organization's update in like nonprofit fundraising, whatever I was interested in in the moment. I let learning be a part of my toolkit. And service to others has always been fundamental. Service to others is the space for me that reflects what I'm good at. So it allows me to practice my one thing on someone who really needs it in a way that they're grateful for and they wanted it. I don't have to push it on them. I don't have to like have an agenda. They just have a need and I had the solution and it cost me nothing. And the reward for that has been momentous. It allows me to use it on my resume. It allows me to to connect. um, And it allows me to be solution focused and solution oriented. And so I think property has been that for me. I was a, a young mother. And so 
having a landing spot that wasn't much, but it's what I could afford and owning that own something that you don't have to negotiate with others. Mm -hmm. It could be an RV. It can be a condo that you go in with somebody on own something that is just yours that you don't have to negotiate. That's a part of your toolkit. And so I, I just think that those things help you as you continue to navigate through your life and it allows you to be flexible when you need it. I love that. As you know, I just turned 28 this year and I'm in a space where I'm comfortable trying to now establish a career. Like, man, that, that bringing tears to my eyes a little bit. That was beautiful. So I appreciate you sharing that. Uh, Maya, I want to thank you for taking the time to share your perspective on some of the strangest and most bizarre news stories the world has to offer in an engaging, productive, and meaningful conversation. Listeners, if you would like to continue to learn more about Maya's work, you can do so by heading to her website, www.thefordmomentum.com. Once again, www.thefordmomentum.com. And as always, that link will be included in the description of this episode and on our website, www.watercoolertalkpod.com. So I said I would get there. We're here. Uh, in much of your work, you talk about the idea. And I mean, this is, I, I for my work, I believe this is a good tool to have. But the idea of asking the right questions. And I believe, you know, that's the, uh, it's vital to the continuation of good, solid work that makes true impact. It's a process, you know, I go through for this show, like obviously doing all this research on you and finding out, all right, how do I make these questions that are good for you, are good for the stories that connect all those things together? When considering the right question uh, and what that may be, what kind of practices are you putting into motion to ensure you, you know, deliver on that? And sometimes you don't deliver on that. I've asked questions where I'm like, ooh, I see the person's face. I'm like, oh, maybe not the right question. But, you know, most of the time, how do you ensure you're delivering on asking those right questions? I love that question. Inquiry really can't go wrong unless you feel that you know the answer. I think that's obnoxious. <laughs> um, so, you know, and people understand that humans have the sense the same way birds know when the storm is coming. We use vibration in communication. Questions that I try to stay away from are rhetorical questions because they are really not about solution finding. They are about proving your point in an indirect way. Questions that do the other person harm are not about solution finding. They're about control and wanting to punch down. There are other components of culture that are really important in inquiry. So I am Panamanian and English and Spanish are very different. And I love direct questions. I like people to not beat around the bush with me because really what I want to do is take a nap, not answer your questions. <laughs> so I like very perfunctory query, but in Latin America, they don't. So growing up, I was considered the rude American because I would ask very direct questions. <laughs> and because I was translating English to Spanish, wrong way to yeah. do it. It's very disrespectful. Instead, you have to, when you understand cultures and what cultural norms are, then you get a better opportunity of like not doing them harm, even if it's unintentional. A good example in Africa, in West Africa, they call 
the elders, auntie and uncle. So if I wanted something, I would say, uh, excuse me, auntie, how are you today? May I please use your car to go to South Africa this weekend? <laughs> and they would be like, absolutely not. You can't do that. But if I came to them and said, hey, I want to go to South Africa this weekend. Can I use your car? It's a hell no. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to be told no either way. Uh-huh. You rude, insolent, little twit. No, you can't. Right? And so um, honorifics play a big part into most cultures that are non-American. Asian communities still use honorifics. Uh, Hispanic communities do, and African cultures absolutely use honorifics. So making sure that query comes with understanding their order of cultural or social hierarchy is really important. And the last thing is, you know, I try to ask questions based on genuine curiosity. Like, I observed this thing, Adam... Please forgive me if I'm way off or if I offend you. Or Adam, what are ways that I can ask you personal things without offending you? Mm -hmm. And then moving into, I observed this thing. What does it come from? Why is it so? And I have more of those types of questions like, I noticed this. Is it accurate? And why? Why do you all do that? Where did it start? Is it still important? And then I take my that response and I bank it and I do whatever with it. But do no harm. Know who you're talking to. And also don't do things to, don't ask questions that you already think you know the answers to. It's a waste of everybody's time. <laughs> and I think that's, you know, I mean, I look, I work with, or I used to work with a lot of podcasters and like helping them set up their space and helping them figure out how to exist in the space. And I think that was something that I was very, you know, always on them for is like, if you're not curious about the person you're talking to, don't have them on your show. Don't waste their time. Don't waste your own time. Like looking through everything you've done, listening to, you know, past podcasts you've done, you know, articles written about you. I was like, oh shit, this person's really interesting. And there's a lot of things that, I mean, speaking to these stories where I was like, I want to know her perspective on these things because I'm really interested. She, or she fits for these stories. And I'm curious to know how she sees these stories, because as I talked about earlier, obviously we're coming in, you know, with different lived experiences and I want to better myself. I want to better my listeners. I, you know, as the show continues to grow internationally, understanding that, yeah, all these international people love these U S stories, but now I have to start figuring out, it's like, okay, news happens all around the world. Something's happening everywhere in the world. So how do I, you know, connect with people that can connect me with people that bring me to those bigger spaces where I can have those conversations about things way outside of my wheelhouse, but I'm curious about those things. I want to know what's happening with those things. I want to know what's happening halfway across the world. I'm interested, you know, I mean, I grew up watching and I know it's not the best, obviously, <laughs> look at archaeology, but grew up watching and loving Indiana Jones and the first three movies, the second two uh, they don't exist, right? It's a it's a well-known fact that Crystal Skull and the Dial of Destiny were a figment of our imagination. But I grew up watching those and just the curiosity of going to places and experiencing these different cultures. And, you know, once again, most archaeologists will say it's not the correct way to do archaeology, right? Uh, you need the context. You need, you know, everything around that. But having these experiences that say, oh, yeah. These are outside of what my normal day-to-day -day would be 
And I'm curious to know how other people see the world. I'm curious to know how other people live, their customs, their culture. That's so interesting to me because I I feel like it adds so much to your life. Because if you're in this constant routine, time just flies by. And that's not a great thing. We have 24 hours in a day. That's a lot of freaking time. (laughs) That's a lot of freaking time. And if you're constantly in this routine, those 24 hours just fly by. But if you're constantly switching up that routine, if you're finding spontaneity, I mean, obviously having that balance between spontaneity and routine is important, but time slows down and you start enjoying things more. You start enjoying people more. And that is so important. And I I love that you added curiosity to that because curiosity is so vital to everything I do in the world. And I think it's so important. I think people need to be like, yeah, I I really like Avatar. So maybe I'm going to go and find where that group is and join that group and bring, you know, Mountain Dew Blue. <laughs> I I love this conversation with you, Adam, because I agree. What it has done through your own curiosity is connected us across worlds and cult- and cultures, but it's connected our values, something that we want to protect. And the coolest thing for me having lived in other places of being an American is that questions are free here. Mm. We're not penalized for query here. Whereas in some nations, like you're sent to jail for, for questioning your government or challenging the way they do those things. Um, We've seen that in Iran. We've seen that and not saying that the people are bad, but, but those are not values that we cherish. That cap of curiosity is not something that, that we value. And so I I agree, like the curiosity allows us to come into these spaces and find something that we agree upon and and be willing to protect it. But it shows like in our human nature and our mammalian nature that, you know, we would be a species that would, we would be part of the species that would flow and flock together. Whereas the policies here in the United States teach us otherwise, right? They say like, if you or I are of different socioeconomic groups, that we wouldn't find synergy if we are of different ethnicities, that we wouldn't have the same values or, you know, and those things just aren't true. My father taught me when I was very young, um, if you can't travel, the best way to learn the world is to go to the library and read. And it's been the greatest gift of my life reading because literacy for me has been the space that gave me concepts. So I didn't have to experience rape to understand the concept and the trauma of rape and be sensitive to that when I'm dealing with traumatized populations in my workforce that go into unsafe spaces to do community engagement work, right? Like that was through literacy. I didn't have to experience hunger to to be able to look through someone else's eyes through literature and like see their perspective and now know also when I'm doing this work in populations that are suffering from poverty, I bring food, right? Like hunger will not be an issue that that will take place in my safe space. And so like these things are all a part of the human condition. But first, I have to do the work, like you're saying, really know how to connect those dots to create the safe space. But without language or concepts, I wouldn't have it because I didn't grow up hungry. I didn't know that my family was undocumented. I didn't know that we were poor. Like I didn't know any of those things. They didn't tell me. 
I, I didn't have physical trauma, but it was existing. So coming into the world, I was ignorant and I'm grateful to them for carrying that burden. But also I feel like yourself that there's perhaps an obligation to ensuring that we, we don't, I don't just protect my children from that. I correct the system. I don't want to shoulder it. I want it to be gone. Yeah. I don't want to pass it on to them. I want them to be free of it. Yes. And that's the work. And that work has nothing to do with production and consumption. So in your effort, you're doing so much more with one concept of inquiry. Mm -hmm. You're opening up an entire field of existence and consciousness that allows us to move forward and do the work so that we don't have to shelter it. It's um, I still don't have language for that part. But the mirroring, you are creating opportunities to mirror. Maybe I'll never know. I don't know that my brain is big enough to understand things like, you know, beyond galaxy and, and time and space. I don't know. But it is happening. We <laughs> yeah. do see evidence. Well, my, I feel like you've complete. that was like the perfect way to end the show. And, you know, maybe it was and maybe this will be something we'll cut out because, you know, that was just so perfect. But. We are now to my favorite part of the show where I get to hand off the mic to you to, you know, perfectly encapsulate everything we have talked about today in a conclusion, you know, that leaves the audience pondering for more, asking questions about their existence, wondering how they can be a better member of life. You know, you've done it countless times today. You've done it countless times in your work. Connect with this community and bring us home safely. I would like to offer a blessing and encouragement for you first. Adam, as someone who has been willing to challenge status quo and what we consider appropriate or strange or challenging or not, and any form of inquiry done in love and in true curiosity is going to have a response because if there's a man-made problem, there's a man-made solution. Safety for us, I do challenge our listening community to really slow down before we speed up. What may be safe for us may not be safe for your neighbor. And I haven't seen once where someone is living a good life and their neighbor is suffering that they have truly been happy. And so, you know, just to remind us, poverty is a system and there are different types of poverty that have nothing to do with money. So your tools and your resources don't always have to do with money the way that we distribute them, the rules that we make don't necessarily have to do with money. It's about distribution. And in order to leverage and protect your geographic area and resources, you have to love it. So being good to the land, being good to yourself, being good to each other is just a good practice. And it may force us to look within ourselves and see that we're doing some things that really don't help. So be gentle with ourselves. Don't be afraid to talk about it. And more importantly, don't be afraid to ask questions. I like it. And, you know, I, I, I like to end every episode with gratitude. I think it's really important. So first off, just thank you for obviously, you know, the scheduling. And to get to this point, I think we built a beautiful conversation today that was meant for today. And I'm always in the the mindset that 
things are meant to be where they're meant to be and they're supposed to happen when they're supposed to happen. And I think that's one of these where this conversation was supposed to happen today. It wasn't supposed to happen, you know, a week ago, two weeks ago. It was supposed to happen today because coming into this, I think we're both in a space where we could build something beautiful like we just, you know, built. And obviously, you know, I love every single episode I've ever done, but I think this one is going to be up there towards the top. It's like, you know, I, I know when parents say it's like, I don't have a favorite child, but you definitely have like a child where you're like, I like you a little better today. <laughs> That's how I feel about this episode. I'm excited to edit it. I'm excited to, you know, get it out to the audience and see kind of what their reaction is because I've enjoyed this conversation. And I think that comes from you know, obviously you being a wonderful human being and being open to the curiosity of this conversation. Uh, so for that, thank you. Thank you. Thank you right back. I know you took me to church. <laughs> you got me thinking about some things of like building up, not out. I know. I need a nap. <laughs> All right. Well, listeners, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, the show will be over. Peace. This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not because they're real. <laughs>